The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast and really does most of the work. He likes to say that I do the work, but not true. He books all the guests, and he handles all of the aftermarket of the podcast and making sure that we get seen and heard. Today's episode is episode number 260, which puts us smack dab at the end of our fifth year. We've been podcasting every year for five years. And while we don't get a lot of feedback from you, we sincerely hope that we have offered you a message or two of help and that there is hope no matter what you're going through. There's help available and we want to give you hope. We've done all different kinds of interviews and we're going to continue to do this. We don't foresee stopping this podcast anytime soon, at least not while the addiction pandemic is as raging as it is today. So today we have an interview. Oh, but before I get into that, let me remind you, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and um, give us a good rating because then Google finds us and points other people in our direction. Also, if you, if you like to watch videos, we video all of our, our recordings now and um, we've got a YouTube channel so you can watch them there. If you do, please subscribe, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to be notified when there's a new video, you just click that little bell and you'll get some sort of a notification that says there's a new addiction podcast episode up. All right. So today we are speaking with a gentleman named Aaron Reed. Aaron accepted an international teaching position at a prestigious prep school in Southeast Asia in 2006. And so he and his wife relocated to Cambodia. And after the birth of his daughter in 2009, he found himself swallowed into the belly of the city's drug scene with a raging meth addiction. Within months, he was recruited as a drug mule, working for both the Nigerian and Khmer cartels, running kilos from South America to Southeast Asia to support his habit. He lost his wife, he lost his job, he lost his child, and life just got worse from there. So let's talk to Aaron because I'd like to know more about how he got addicted to drugs in the first place and how he pulled himself out of it. So let's talk to Aaron Reed. Aaron Reed, thank you for being willing to be on the podcast today and share your story. I'm super excited to hear more details about what I read. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, Joni. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I know that, well, tell me where you grew up. Give me, tell me a little bit about your life and how you grew up and basically then kind of segueing into how you got started on drugs. Okay. Um, I had a really idyllic uh, childhood growing up in Detroit, Michigan, and um, I grew up in the 70s and in the 80s, so that was a pretty good time. Um, I went to a small parochial school and um, had a good school experience and then went on to Eastern Michigan University, uh, where I got my degree in written communication. And then uh, years later, I pursued a teaching career. Um, So I went back to school, got a teaching certificate, and then um, started doing programs in California with special needs students. And then um, I got married in San Francisco, and we decided to go into the international teaching 
uh, circuit. And so my wife and I moved to Phnom Penh, Cambodia. So your wife so was a teacher too? She was not. She, she was oh. a social worker. Oh, okay. And so she was uh, involved in social work and I was involved in uh, pursuing international education. And I landed this really excellent teaching position in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And um, there's a lot of uh, social issues in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, um, specific around to the remnants of, of the history of war that that country has experienced. And so there's a lot of pieces to pick up over there. And so as I moved to my new teaching position in Phnom Penh, my wife uh, moved there with me and she was able to practice their social work pursuits there. Okay. And, now, did uh, you have any kind of drug or alcohol history before then or just? Not, not to the alarming rate that, that I ran into. Just experimentation there. like most of we yeah. American teenagers. Okay. Right. And uh, so the first couple of years in Cambodia were, were very uh, productive professionally and uh, spiritually and emotionally. It was, it was off to a really good start. And then I, um, it, was, it was a really interesting way how it happened. Um, my school would fly my wife and I back um, to the States every summer. And one summer I left early and went back to Phnom Penh by myself. And uh, my wife and my baby daughter stayed in, in uh, California a little bit longer to spend time with friends and family. And when I landed um, in Phnom Penh, I was completely jet lagged. And, and just kind of, you know, out of my head, it was three o'clock in the morning and I was wide awake, bouncing off the walls. And, and I thought to myself, I had this ridiculous idea that I would go out and try and find some marijuana to, to mellow down, right? And so um, I knew where the, where the ghetto was. And um, <clears throat> so I walked across the park in the middle of the night, went into the ghetto, and there was a severe language barrier going on there. Um, I did not speak Khmer and uh, the native population there um, seldom speaks English, and especially in the environment that I was in. And so I went in and I start going around and I, I spot these group of guys, these young guys, and you know, there's drugs, there's drug dealers all over the place, and there's pimps and there's prostitutes. The whole thing is in full swing. So um, yeah, I approached the, these group of young guys and um, I, I asked for some marijuana and they didn't understand what I was talking about. And so then I pantomimed smoking a pipe. And that translated into, okay, we know what this guy wants. And so one of the guys put a little bag in my hand and I gave him some money and off I went. And I went back to the house and got ready to smoke. And I sat down and I opened the little package that had been given to me and a bunch of ice crystals fell out. And I, I, had, never, I had never seen that before. I was going to say, not so, marijuana. Yeah, I'm like, this does not look like Doesn't look like crap, weed. Right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I, was, I was so hell-bent on doing something that I, I put it in the pipe and lit up, uh, not knowing exactly what I had, what I had scored. And uh, it ended up being methamphetamine. And uh, from the moment that my lips hit that pipe, I was hooked. Oh my and goodness! And so I spent I spent the night 
finishing what, what the young man had given me. And the minute that that was gone, I was right out on the street looking for my next score. You know, Aaron, I, I'm, I'm going to make an editorial comment. You know, sometimes we hear stories where someone kind of starts gradually and, you know, they're drinking as a teenager and then they kind of start with marijuana. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, and the point I want to make is that you're playing Russian roulette when you do these drugs, because I may be able to do it the first time and go, yeah, it was okay, but I don't know that I want to do it anymore. But then in your case, that was it. You were hooked after the first, after the first taste and it, that right. happens. And I think people, especially young people think, oh, it's not going to affect me. I'm not going to get addicted. And then, whoa. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and especially in, in the climate, in the drug climate that we're experiencing today, if you're buying drugs, you don't know what's in them anymore. Nope. Nope. You know, back in the day when we were using recreationally in college, we would buy something and we knew what it was. And it's it's not that way anymore. Um, you can buy sudden substance and it's going to be laced with the fentanyl and, and then you have a fatality. Yep. Yep. Let me also just say one other thing, because I remembered mm. this story. My brother was in Vietnam and mm. he wasn't in the jungles fighting. He was in the city, but he scored some marijuana and he started having very bad hallucinations, which landed him in the mental ward of the military hospital in Hawaii, where we were at the time. And I often wonder what was in that marijuana. I, I mean, I know marijuana can cause hallucinations, but I don't think that's what he got. And maybe he got something like you did and just didn't notice it, you know? Well, it could have been heroin, could have been opium. You never know these days anymore. Yep. Anyway, so go ahead with your story. I am sorry. So you went to get more. Yeah, so I went to get more and... Uh... Subsequently, um, it did not take long. So, so at that point, um, I was married. Uh, I was a professional teacher in the international community. I had a wonderful occupation. Uh, we had just um, greeted our daughter, our newborn daughter, into the world. So I was a father, and um, things were pretty solid. And it did not take long at all for me to um, decimate my marriage and nearly lose my child and um, lose every single thing that, that I mean, I, I went from living a, a pretty comfortable life over there to um, living in a hovel and, and, and it did not take long. When I say it didn't take long, we're, we're talking maybe uh, less than two years. Wow. Before, you know, the bank accounts were drained. My wife had left me. My wife had taken our daughter back to the States and left me to my own devices. And, and it's interesting, it's very powerful what we're talking about because the decisions that I was making at that point were so muddled and so clouded over and so influenced by the substances that I was, that I was taking, uh, I was not in my right mind. And so you, you deteriorate physically, you deteriorate financially, you deteriorate spiritually, you deteriorate emotionally to where you are injuring anyone and everyone, anyone and everything around you for your next hit. And, and you're willing to trade that. And it's just a terribly dangerous place to end up. Yep. Were you doing anything besides methamphetamine or was that pretty much your drug of choice and that's what you stuck with? That's what I stuck with. And that's the only thing that I, that I was using at that time. It, it was just, that was my focus. And 
Yeah, I, I traded everything that I loved and everything that I once had for, for that path. And that's how powerful it was. We have heard that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I do understand. <clears throat> and so that, you know, it's, it's interesting when you, when you land that low on the ladder and that is your reality, you would think that you would, you would take an assessment, you would reassess and try and figure out, Hey man, something's not right here. You know, I, I've, I don't have anything left anymore except this glass and, and this drug and, and no money to finance this. So that was unfortunately not my case. Um, I went further down, down the ladder. And um, one night I was, um, I was spending some time with a friend of mine who was a heroin addict. And I, we were at his place, at his little hovel in the city. And I was doing my, my math and he was doing his heroin and we were having a, you know, an evening together. And there was a knock on the door. And um, so my friend opened the door and this guy comes in and just this amazing, amazingly colorful character. He comes in and he says, hey, Mike. And, and my friend's name was Mike. And Mike greets his friend and they sit down and they had known each other for a long time and they hadn't seen each other. So it was, they were enjoying this reunion of sorts. And I'm sitting there and finally I'm introduced to, to the guy that shows up. And um, so we're, we're having a nice social evening there and he visits for about a half hour. And then on his way out the door, um, he, he asks, hey, do you guys know anybody who wants to fly? And that's, that's the lingo for um, muling, for drug smuggling. I got it. And so he's like, hey, you guys know anybody that, will, that might want to fly? And I'm like, I think I would like to do that. I, I'd be very sorted for that type of thing. And so after meeting that gentleman, um, I was, he was working for the Nigerian cartel that was uh, smuggling internationally in and out of Southeast Asia. And they were recruiting. And so when I responded to the call, um, within a couple of days, a meeting was set up um, between the man that I had met there that evening and um, a representative of the Nigerian cartel, and they recruited me. And so very quickly, I was, I was involved with the cartel as an international drug smuggler. Okay, naive little me, didn't know there was a Nigerian cartel. So there's not drugs in Nigeria. They're dealing drugs from, or are there drugs in, um, forgive me, I don't, where does the drugs come from that the Nigerian cartel deals with? Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> um, so, so Phnom Penh is, is a, a haven um, for importation of, of drugs due to its locality. So they bring drugs into Cambodia, and um, the, the borders around Cambodia are very porous. And so once the drugs come into Cambodia, they're easily moved into Vietnam. They're easily moved up routes up north to Laos. Uh, the routes then go uh, west into Thailand. And so it's kind of a hub for an import. Uh, okay. And so the Nigerian cartel that was operating in Southeast Asia was primarily moving cocaine from South America into Southeast Asia through the Phnom Penh portal. Okay. And so, and so, um, 
but another another reason why I jumped at that opportunity was when you're using drugs, you quickly realize that a lot of money is going out. You know, you're spending a lot of money on this and, and you quickly realize that all of a sudden you wake up and you take an assessment and you're almost broke. And you being broke has no bearing to you needing that drug, your continuous need to satiate your, your urge for that, that substance. And so I, that's what happened to me. I woke up, I'm like, I'm really, really poor here. I'm almost tapped out. I have a huge addiction problem. I need my drugs. So you quickly figure out if I start selling and working as, as a drug dealer, I can finance my habit much easier. And so that's why I responded to the call. Um, so willingly, I thought to myself, yeah, I can get into this, this situation of international drug smuggling, make some money and support my habit much easier and with much less worry. And so that's why I responded so quickly to that, to that uh, recruiting call. And so very quickly, I found myself sucked into working for the cartel and um, muling drugs internationally. Wow. And, and so they would put me, yeah, they would put me on planes and, you know, they would say, oh, first of all, it's, it's very inconsistent work. Um, you, you might get a job and then you do the job and then you might wait six to eight to two months, you know, three months for your next job. And um, so it's very inconsistent. I would imagine because if you were flying like every week or every month or something, that would raise a red flag to officials and they would start wondering what you were doing. So I would imagine they have to be very careful in terms of when they send people. That's correct. That's a good insight. And that's exactly how it works. And so I remember, um, you know, my first, uh, my first muling experience, got the phone call. They said, okay, you're going to be going down to Sao Paulo. Uh, you'll be there for two weeks. Uh, you will be taken care of. You'll have no worries. After two weeks, the package will become available and ready. You will take it. You'll put it in your luggage, and you'll bring it back to South Asia. That's it. It'll be very easy. And so I agreed, and we flew down to Sao Paulo and waited two weeks for the package, and the package wasn't ready. Waited three weeks for the package. Still no package waited four weeks. Finally, um, I ran out of money. And um, my, my supervisor back in Asia, for whatever reason, was not sending me money to support me while I was there. And forget credit cards. By that time, my credit cards were gone, long gone. I had no savings. So I was completely dependent on support coming from South Asia. And it wasn't coming. And so I bailed on the job and I got back. I was I, I ended up being evicted from the hotel where I was staying, which was a very humiliating experience. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at the addiction podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, the addiction podcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review.
Sometimes. The hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. And I, I got kicked out of the hotel. I had three days to my flight. And so I was basically homeless in Sao Paulo. And I, I figured out, okay, what do, what do I need? I need shelter, I need water, and I need cigarettes. Uh, where can I get these things? And I, I decided I can get them at the airport. I can live homeless at the airport and, and have all of these things that I'm, I'm requiring. So that's what I did. I lived at the, at the Sao Paulo airport for about three or four days waiting wow. for my flight and finally got on the flight went back to South Asia, met with my boss, and I was ready to knock his teeth out. I'm like, why did you do that? How, how could you strand me over there? And, and he doubled down and said, how could you do that? How could you leave when the package wasn't wasn't yet ready? And so we had this knockdown drag out argument, and we ended up uh, agreeing that I he still needed my services, and I sincerely still needed his services because I didn't have anything else going no way to support myself. And so we agreed to forgive each other. And uh, a couple months later, they sent me back down to Sao Paulo um, for, for a more successful delivery back to South Asia. So wow. it was just chaos oh, and my disorder goodness. every single day. <laughs> wow. And, and um, this continued, Joni. Um, this lifestyle continued for a couple of years. And... Uh, it did not get better. If anything, it got only worse. And then one day they called me and said, okay, uh, we have we have your next job. You'll be going down to Bogota to pick up a package in Colombia. And I said, I'm not feeling that one. I don't that that doesn't, I don't feel too good about that. And he said, Well, why don't you think about it and get back with us? And so I went went off and thought about it, and it was really not much to think about other than I still needed drugs. I had no money. I had no income and I need to work. And so it, it, at that point, it wasn't a matter of convenience of, oh yeah, I can choose to go there, but not here. I needed to work. Yeah. And so I agreed to go down to Bogota. This was in the summer of 2015. And so I packed up uh, my backpack full of clothes, and I locked my locked the door to my little hovel there in Phnom Penh. And I flew down to Colombia, and I waited around for nine days before the package was ready to be picked up. Uh, I went, got the phone call, went and met the people, got the package, packed it in my rolly, and uh, my, I was going to fly out the next morning. And I remember, it's, it's kind of ironic now when I think back, on, on that that job the last thing i, I was it, it was just it, it, there was something really nerve-wracking about it um i couldn't put my finger on it but it didn't feel right i was nervous as heck 
And I remember after receiving the package from the supplier, I turned to him and I said, you know, I said, dogs at the airport can sniff this stuff out. And he said, don't worry about that. He said, this is professionally packaged. Um, you'll have no problems. The dogs will not be able to smell this, this uh, package the way that we've packed it. It's professionally done. Have a good flight. I said, fine. Went to the airport the next morning, uh, checked in, checked my rolly, and uh, proceeded to walk to the gate. And I was the last one to, so people started boarding the flight, and I waited to be the very last person to get on the plane. And when I went up to the ticketing agent, I, I handed her my passport, handed her my ticket, and she said, she looked at the passport. She said, oh, Mr. Reed, the police have smelled something in your luggage. Um, come with me. They have some questions for you. And it, this, is, this is also an interesting reflection. In that moment, any normal person would be hit like a bucket of water in the face with panic. And Joni, I didn't care. Mm. When she told me that, she could have told me, um, you know, hey, let's go get a sandwich. And I would yeah. have been, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's cool. Yeah. And yeah, it, it just, I was so far gone at that point. My, my driving force um, to exist at that point came from this severe state of apathy. Yep. Yep. I didn't care about anything. And, and maybe that's why I had been so successful as a drug mule, because normal people put in that circumstance are, are nervous. They're scared yeah. because yeah. they're breaking international law. Yeah. I, I walked through airports with just the, the most sincerest apathy. And I think that that probably led to a lot of my successes. I had mm. no nerve, nervousness going on. And so she said, the police, the dogs have smelled something in your luggage. Please come with me. And I said, sure, no problem. And we walked down into this, um, this unassuming room um, behind a gray door, gray metal door. And they opened the door and I walked into the room and there were about 15 police officers there. And there was my purple rolly on, on a stainless steel table laying right there. And in the corner of the room, there was the most beautiful canine specimen I had ever seen. And his name was Bronco. Mm -hmm. And um, so they introduced me to Bronco. <laughs> Bronco smelled something funky in your luggage right. there, Mr. Reed. <laughs> right. And, and, and Bronco is just this beautiful, huge German shepherd. And he's staring right at me. And his tongue is lolling out of his mouth. And you know, I said, oh, wow, Bronco, job well done. Yep. And so that was the day of my arrest. So you ended up in prison in Colombia. That's right. And is that where you got clean in while you were in prison? That's right. That's okay. that's exactly what happened. But you could so, you could have had access to drugs, no? There were an insane amount of drugs in, in that prison. So and, what made you decide not to do it? Um it was uh It, it was it was a decision that I made um, because there was nothing left. 
um, I had no family. You know, I well, the arrest happened. So I went, I go into the jail and the first thing I do is I call my dad. And um, the first call to my parents was uh, full of tears and full of sorrow. Um, but I, I don't think I was crying out of empathy for them or for myself. I was crying more out of fear. Yeah. Um, because I was still addicted and, yeah. and my only focus was was drugs and where am I going to get the next score? And so that, that first phone call to the parents, you know, I had alienated. First of all, I, I grew up in a wonderful family. Right. And I up until that point of my addiction in South Asia, I enjoyed a, a lovely and endearing and open relationship with both of my parents and my sister. Uh, I had I had many really good friends, friends from 25 and 30 years. Um, and so I had I was really supported with a lot of love from my family. Uh, I had outstanding friends. But during my years of addiction, um, I crushed all of that. Yeah, I was going to say now you've burned all those bridges and now here you are in a South American prison. Exactly. And exactly. Uh, yeah. And um, so that was when I realized my resources had been completely used up. Um, I had no money. I had no way of making money right. or getting money. And and those first phone calls to my family, it was, if, I, if I'm going to be honest about it, um, you need money in prison to survive. Right. It's, just a, it's a fact. Everything costs money. And I, I was asking my parents for support, but if I'm going to be completely honest, um, some of that was cunning and, and the money that I was asking for certainly would have gone to buy drugs right. in jail and, right. and stay addicted and stay high. And my parents had had enough of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I had kicked them in the teeth repeatedly for years. I had lied to them. I had abused them emotionally. I had lied to my friends. And so pretty much at that point, any anyone that I would have called knew that the game was up. They, you know, they knew what I was doing. They knew where I was. And, right. and so my my parents um, lovingly decided that they were not no they were no longer going to support that in any way, shape, or form. Understood. How long did you end up staying in the prison, Aaron? Three years, two months, and twenty-one days. Okay. Mm-hmm. And and those those first six months in the jail uh, was uh, unlike anything I've ever experienced. Um, I, I had never been to jail before, especially a Colombian prison. Right. Um, right. I had no linguistic abilities. Um, there was very little communication that I could understand. Uh, everything was spoken in Spanish, and. Uh, Everything was spoken in prison Spanish, <laughs> which is a, a whole yeah. other language. Yeah. And um, so I, it was um, terror times 10. And um, it, it was just, it was so dire and so dark. Um, there really was no other choice for me, Joni, but to um, confront my addiction and, and make a conscious and clear decision at that moment to embrace the road to sobriety there wow. there were there it was almost like a, a decision by default i had no other choices left yeah 
Yeah. And so, and it's, it's interesting. Um, I like to think that um, <clears throat> God or, or whoever you want to call, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, higher, the higher power um, decided that he had had enough mm. of Aaron. <laughs> and, there you go. And, well, there's that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I pushed, I pushed my friends away, pushed my family away, pushed God away, had nothing to do with him. And, and I think I like to think that um, he, he kind of had had enough at that point too and said, you know what? I, I love this guy, but he's clearly off, off the rails. Yeah. And, He's going to die. Yep. And this lifestyle is not not going to support his life anymore. He's on a on a fast track to the grave, and um, I think we'll put him in timeout for a while. <laughs> see how see how he does with a new environment. And okay. and so that's kind of the fantasy that I I play about it. And um, I got it. Yeah, it's a good it's a good way to think about how things. Uh, eventually led to the sobriety there you go and you've been sober since 2016 that's correct that's awesome that's amazing um you know you you know you're lucky to be alive right i i yeah had it not been <laughs> had it not been for the way things played out and had it not been for me landing in an awful place jail is an awful place yep but, but death is even worse yep. and, and you can endure jail um, yep it takes it takes a lot of doing, but you can do it. Yeah, and um, that's that's what happened. Understood. Well, Aaron, tell us about your book because you wrote a book about all of this. Yes. What's the name of your book, and and how do people get your book? My book is titled "Another in the Fire," and um, it's it it basically um, it, it tells the story. Um, with 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 much more detail right um, basically the same story that i just yeah. told you you got the you got the 20 minute version <laughs> exactly well then you know this will get people excited and then they can read your book <laughs> sure yeah um another in the fire it was published uh in october of last year okay uh, the book is available on amazon and um yeah it's available for purchase for there for anyone interested in um the, the story of what addiction can do to a person, um, bring them to total annihilation. Yep. The book also expands on the effect of an addict on his family and on yep. his loved ones and, yep. and the burden that, that those loved ones carry, trying to love the addict, but at the same time, learning how to live with, with the monster that that person has become. Yep. Um, and then it, it also goes, it, it details my life uh, falling into drug addiction in South Asia. It details um, my relationships with the cartels. And um, basically the road that led me into the Colombian prison. Yep. And then my habilitation that happened thereafter. I think, I think that's awesome. And I think, you know, it, it's one of those things I say this sometimes when, when I'm talking to someone who has a particularly horrific story, which yours is, and that is that if you can come back from that rock bottom, then the people who are listening can come back. You know, I mean, that 
I'm not saying addiction is like easier for some than it is for others. Everybody's got Mm. their own rock bottom, but that's a pretty Mm. horrific story. And I think that if you can turn your life around and you can become successful living without drugs, then I think a lot of other people can as well. And they don't have to let it get that bad. I appreciate you so much telling your story, sharing it with us and, you know, sharing it in your book. I think that that takes that in itself takes a lot of courage. And I, I really appreciate you doing that, Aaron. Joni, I really appreciate your time and your interest. Um, when, when I, when I was finally released from the jail, um, I came out and um, rented a little room in a condominium and set immediately to, to writing the, writing the first draft. And um, the first draft took, took about um, 14 months. And uh, then I, I started working with an editor and um, we, we polished it up. But the whole time, Joni, I was, I was bent on, it was almost a, a catharsis, yep. writing this story, getting yep. it out, reliving the monster that I had become, reliving all of the injuries that I had caused everyone. And, and it was yep. a very difficult process. But the whole time writing it, I knew that within those pages, there's got to be something for somebody absolutely that, that, who is struggling with addiction, absolutely uh, who who needs um, someone else's insight or someone else's experience that they can relate to and connect with and think, my God, if that guy did it, exactly, then I then I can do it. Exactly. So, so I'm telling you, your your interview today, your book, you are helping people, and you may not hear about it. You know, we don't get a a lot of calls from people saying that the podcast has helped them, but we know it does. And I know your story will, and I know your book will. So thank you for doing it. Yeah, that's my only hope, Joni, is that someone out there can find some healing within those pages and um, have a good experience reading it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Aaron. Joni, thank you for your time and your interest. I had a great time with you today. Good. Thank you so much for listening today. And thank you for listening to us over the past five years. We are going to continue podcasting until this pandemic, this addiction pandemic, nothing to do with COVID, until this addiction pandemic is gone. And that may take a little while. And it's going to take the help of all of us. It's going to take more than a village. It's going to probably take a whole country to make this go away. So let's each keep doing what we can do. We're going to keep podcasting week after week after week. And yeah, if you've got a story you'd like us to know about, go to our website and reach out to us, or you can reach out to us on Facebook. Everything where we are on the internet is The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another interview. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.